Hey there, humanoids. This is David Shoemaker. The pro wrestling world is currently on fire. And so we've got you covered five days a week on the Ringer Wrestling Show. Every Monday and Thursday, hang out with me and Kaz on the Masked Man Show. And this is Peter Rosenberg, the host of Cheap Heat. Join me and my guys, Stack Guy Greg and Dipperstein, on Tuesdays and Fridays. We talk wrestling, we have bagel breakdowns, mage interviews, and so much more. And Ben Cruz here. Come kick it with me, Cal, and Brian on Wednesday Worldwide, where we hit the most interesting headlines and even react to some of Mass Man's, Cheap Heats, or even your hottest takes. Don't tap out, tap in to the Ringer Wrestling Show feed, now on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay mage, everyone. Worldwide. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Hello, media consumers. Welcome to Pressbox. Brian Curtis of The Ringer here, along with producer Brian Waters. Coming up on today's pod, the Republican primary is over or virtually over. So how does a political reporter cover the next nine months till Election Day? We'll talk about the hive mind takes about 2024, about how media people think about their own free agency, plus the crack up of regional newspapers and the return of Jon Stewart. All this with today's guest host. He is a Stead Herndon, New York Times political reporter, host of the excellent weekly podcast, The Run-Up, which has featured several episodes I've loved recently, one in which he convened a political focus group at his family's Thanksgiving table, another in which he interviewed two activists who interrupted a Joe Biden event in South Carolina. I always enjoy how good and curious and different his podcast is from everything else out there. Stead, welcome back to the Press Box. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you uh, highlighting our work and the work that you do, too. So thank you. Let's start here, since you'll be programming a podcast for the next nine months. How does the fact that this primary season is ending so early change the way you'll cover the election? Well, it does. I mean, in the most literal sense, I basically had a plan to our show came back in uh, November, kind of a year before Election Day. And I basically had a plan of episodes through Iowa. And then thought that, okay, I don't want to overplan once people start voting. Um, and so I had a like light, and the team had kind of a, a light structure to kind of get us through Super Tuesday. Obviously, that's already been blown up because, uh, because of the margins in Iowa and New Hampshire, because of the way the field has collapsed, to your point, the general election is kind of already here. So I do think it, it changes some things. One, I think some of the change is good. It allows us to kind of see the broader landscape of 2024. So we're thinking about Super Tuesday in terms of down ballot races, in terms of people not on the presidential ticket, in terms of stakes and issues and the ways that I think that people come to the process 
it's a little easier to get out of a horse race when the horse race is so familiar and so decided super early. So one of the things I try to tell the folks that I work with at the run-up is like, let's use this moment creatively to actually try to do different things. Um, but the logistical challenge that you're talking about is I think we're entering what I call silly season. Like every single poll will be overanalyzed. Every single reaction will be endlessly debated on Twitter. And we'll have no new information in terms of like hard information for a long time. And so it becomes this like hyper-reactive media period where I think it's really important to not get stuck in the conversation just between campaigns, pundits, and media, because I think it's actually a really critical period to make sure this is when most people are starting to tune in. So let's actually follow that rather than we have months and months to like kind of track where horse race is going. So one example I give about this is um, the Thanksgiving episode you mentioned. That was born out of a poll from the New York Times that showed changes among Black voters. Now, the thing that we did in that episode is not say, oh, does this mean Donald Trump is going to win? But to actually explore the reasons of why that is happening among that group. So to use that as like a poll follow-up. So that's what I think we can do a lot more of as a year is issues, people, new types of voices, and away from the horse race. And I think people will come to that. Nate Cohn, who writes about polling for the Times, was on your pod the other day, and he was talking yeah. about this. That when you look at those results, there's all kinds of fascinating people to go talk to. For instance, people that hate both candidates a lot. Mm -hmm. right? Is that a roadmap for you? Let's go find those people and talk to them about what they're feeling about the campaign, how they might vote in November? Totally. I mean, I think that, like, if you're not starting from the premise of that this is an election that feels really familiar to people and they don't like both candidates, then to me, you're not starting it objectively. Like, that's not to say that the candidates are the same or that they're equally bad, quote unquote, or that it's media's role to kind of call those balls and strikes. But the objective facts tell us that the majority of Americans, including the majority of people in both parties, look at the two candidates and they're not happy. So that's where we started our show. I mean, even before the 2024 was envisioned and we were reporting kind of before the midterms. Our show has been born out of the idea of broken systems. It's been born out of the idea of like people feeling like the process is not reflective of their concerns. And that's, spe that's specifically because in my kind of travels uh, for the 2020 election, that was overwhelmingly what I was hearing, right? And I actually think it's a thing that unites right, left, and center is a kind of class of people who are increasingly feeling like the political system is unresponsive. And so one of the things that I really like is that like, since that is our starting point, it's very easy to, to think about, I, it's not easy, it's not the right way. Since that's our starting point, I think we're better suited to kind of reflect the temperature of this election, but it does require going different types of places. So if you're a person who hates both candidates, I'm not going to find you at a campaign event, you know? If you're a person who thinks or is debating whether to vote or not, I might not, I'm not going to find you at the traditional places we go to talk to those people. And so the challenge for us is finding those places to reflect those voices, those voices that we know are there. So that's why we're at a Jason Aldean concert, right? That's why we talk to the Gaza protesters who interrupt Biden. That's why we're thinking about people who may be outside of the traditional lens of who you talk to ahead of a presidential race. It's because if I'm only going to do the campaigns for the next six, seven months, I think that misses a lot of people generally, as we've seen in elections previously. But I think specifically this year, that misses a whole crop of people because the majority of people are looking at the parties and the candidates as part of the problem. 
will you tell the story about the Jason Aldean concert? Because you interviewed some people there. And then you kind of let the tape run as you started to walk away and end the interview. For people who haven't heard, will you tell them what happened? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it was kind of the closing note to a very interesting day. So the premise was Jason Aldean was closing out the Iowa State Fair's concert series. And so when we looked at kind of what to do for the Iowa State Fair, that's actually what jumped out to me way more than any other candidate or following in the kind of traditional, you know, retail politics sense. Because I had seen the controversy over the summer around his song, Try That, Try That in a Small Town, which became this kind of rallying anthem among Republicans and was played at Republican rallies. Donald Trump was kind of embracing it. It went to number one, all this stuff. And so all of these things are kind of happening. But like you read them in stories, but you don't hear people in their own voices make that connection from culture to politics. And so the premise of why we went to the concert was to say, okay, do the Aldine, what do the Aldine fans think this song is about? And do they see a connection between, you know, try that in a small town and the values of make America great again? And one, they do. I mean, that's one thing I like about people is they don't have the kind of same level of uncomfort that sometimes the political class does in terms of expressing their own values. So, you know, you go talk to someone about Aldine fans and they might be uncomfortable saying, well, you know, like, I don't know if this is about Trump or race or whatever. We go talk to some of these folks directly. The majority of people we talk to are like, absolutely. And I like his message, what he's saying. Like, that's the reason I am here. And so that's why we went. But the moment you're talking about is the moment that happens after the concert is over, where we talk to one final group, basically about this kind of concept. And as they're really laying out that connection I'm talking about, they're laying out the importance of, of, you know, fighting back against people who they think don't reflect their values and the ways they think the country's changing and all this kind of grievance stuff, we get ready to go. We get ready to leave. And then there's a moment that happens when they start asking me and the producer, Caitlin, who I work with, who is a white woman importantly for the story, they start kind of asking about our relationship. Like, how do you two even know each other? Like, what, do you work well together? Do you whatever? And Sometimes this stuff comes up and a lot of times we cut it out because I think part of the role of being there is I'm happy to tell people what we do. I'm happy to tell, explain journalism. I'm happy to go through the process of whatever, whatever. But as you hear in the tape, this turns kind of personal. He like, he, I say my name's Estead. He kind of makes this joke about how I thought you were, you know, you're from Africa and how is this guy who's all blinged out, which for the record, I own zero bling. So that's like not <laughs> true. But he's like, how is this guy who's all, uh, has his sneakers and shit on and how is he working with this girl? And, like, and so it becomes this kind of uncomfortable moment. And we went through about whether to play it or not. And I thought it was actually important, one, because we were dealing with a story that was about grievance, right? That was about race and those things. But I also think that people underrate the amount of like, soft emotional work that goes into reporting. And I think particularly true for marginalized groups, right? If you're gonna if you're a woman on the trail, I mean, this is a thing I experienced going out with our producers. Like some of these interactions are like labor intensive, you know? And if you're a black person out there, like you're gonna have to negotiate some interesting stuff in moments. And so I think audio allows you to play those moments naturally in the way that in a paper story, I would have to insert myself. And that was always really uncomfortable. And so I never knew how, and I didn't want to insert myself in a paper story. But there's a much more natural way to do it on the show because it's just something that happens as we're there. And we don't have to actually frame it for you. You just get to hear it. 
sometimes it's even the moments where you start an interview with a professional politician and it's just the niceties going back and forth. And those mm -hmm. always just feel fascinating to me because this is, yeah, right. It's, and again, it's something that wouldn't have made the New York times or at least the, the, the paper section of the Times. but it's fascinating. Totally. I think the run up is a really transparent journalistic thing. Right. And so whether you agree or disagree with my lens as a reporter, whether you like, whether, however you feel about, I think me as a person, you hear me go through the process, right? And so I think that that transparency is something I really, um, I think it's really vulnerable. I mean, I actually kind of say like, it's a thing I've had to think about more than when I was writing because you know that every word you have written has been poured over. Like, you know it's been edited and I know that I can go back to someone for to, to clarify the quote, right? I can go back to someone to, to make sure that every piece of this, whatever. As you're doing these interviews, as you know, it's kind of live, you know, and I gotta, I might not ask it in the way I wanted to ask it, but I kind of asked it the right way, right? Like I, I am reacting in the moment or whatever, but I think that the transparency to me matters more because, um, in the same way that in the paper, you get your money quote and there's a question of how that came to be. That's not true in audio, right? By the time you get to that person making those statements about my shoes and the producer in that relationship, I don't have to tell you what it was about, right? Like you are making that decision for yourself. And so there's a lot of ways that I think the paper process, um, uh, I mean, of course, it like informed and taught and like taught me how to do the work. But it, 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 the, the, the possibilities of audio and that transparency, I think, allow people to come to you as a journalist in a full way. So, and a lot of times in the listeners, they can disagree with where an interview goes even, but they can respect the arc, you know? And um, they hear you try to be respectful. They hear you try to think about both sides, but not in a both sidesy type of way. And so I like that proof point as like, you know, my response to if people say, if people have like questions about what we're doing, like listen and decide for yourself because I trust that transparency is actually what people want from reporting. Speaking of putting interviews in context, we had a special counsel's report from Robert Hur the other day that yeah, included yeah. the now immortal words that Joe Biden is, quote, a well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. You've had professional Democrats on the pod powering through questions yes. about Biden 2024. What questions are you interested in asking about the issue of his age? now? I mean, there's a couple things when I think about the special counsel report. Like, there is both the facts of what he said, which are like, which, which I think are important because they, um, they they mesh with what people anecdotally feel about Biden, right? Like, whether the special counsel report came out or not, it did not put age into the spotlight. It did not create age as an issue for voters. Like, it was always, it was already there. It's the biggest thing people say. Every time I ask people, what do you think about Joe Biden, Democrat, like Democrat, Republican, the first thing people say is age. So like that was true before uh, the special counsel. I think it adds an air of legitimacy to the age kind of argument um, because it was coming from someone inside his own DOJ. And then most importantly, I think like it creates a level of expectation that's really going to, what's really going to matter is how he, what he does going forward. And so when I, the questions I have are really not for Democrats. The questions I have are for Joe Biden, right? I want Joe Biden to do interviews. 
You know, I want Joe Biden to put himself out there, to take more questions, to be more on the trail. And I think those, to me, are where the age question will live and die, is if the version of Biden that people see feels like someone who is feeble-minded, old, or whatever, or just absent, or if it feels like someone who's the opposite of those things. And so I think one thing we have right now is you have Democrats willing, so willing, though, on record, off record, tell you what Joe Biden's like in private meetings. You know, I reported a Times piece about um, Vice President Kamala Harris, and so many people will talk about uh, this is what their relationship is like in private, or this is how Biden communicates there, or that's their preferred way to say, oh, that's so ridiculous. He asks such intense questions. And so, but we're not there. <laughs> and I think they're really over-indexing people's own trust in them, particularly when they have an incentive to present him as such. People want to choose for themselves. And so if Joe Biden is who they say he is, that is something he has to prove. And I think for me, if I would think about this as a journalist covering the race, the clearest thing they can do is put him out there. And the clearest thing I want him to do is do an interview. And now, that's not just me saying Joe Biden should come on the run-up, which <laughs> he should. But, like, that's anywhere. I mean, he hasn't done an interview. The president hasn't done an interview with any major newspaper. Like, as a person covering the race, that wouldn't even have to be me. Like. Go do it with one of our colleagues. Go do it at somewhere else. But I think going and doing it is what I'm looking for. You passed up the Super Bowl interview. Exactly. Week. And like, if you're not doing the Super Bowl interview, you're definitely not coming on our show. <laughs> <laughs> you had a moment, you tweeted this out, and it was a voter who I believe was sympathetic to Biden, or at least to Democrats, mm-hmm. who said, you know, I've been hearing about the Biden age thing. I thought it was a little bit overblown by the media. I don't have TV. I don't have a TV. Yeah. But then I saw a clip of Biden. And all of a sudden, exactly. worried about it. And that, that's the type of thing we hear. And those are from people who are sympathetic Democrats. So like, you know, uh, uh, when, uh, when the Democratic apparatus, specifically kind of like liberal Twitter and the kind of professional Democratic class, gets so upset with people who are starting with age, who are kind of leading with his age, my answer is like, they're, your base Democratic voter, the people who are definitely going to vote for him. They're leading with age, too. I mean, that's just, to me, like, the starting point of this election, right? Like, that is not a reason to say that he will lose. Like, the important thing to say is, like, it is unfixable, but it is not inherently uh, disqualifying. Like, I talked to a woman earlier today for our show who um, is one of our listeners who has a, que- who's, who has a question about we're doing, like, a Q&A episode. And her question is literally what happens if they die. <laughs> and, like... You ask that lady, that lady has that question and says she doesn't want to vote for Joe Biden. But she's like, if my option is, I definitely will. Like, that is such a belief that I think it's important for media to calibrate it, not only in the stakes and in the choice against Donald Trump, but in the fact that people can hold two thoughts at once. They can say somebody's old and still think that they're their better option. Like, that's not that hard to square. What is also important is that there is a lot of people who that choice is still an active one, right? Like, they have not, they're not set in that decision. And so the people we're talking to are baseline Democrats. And they're saying they're having to talk themselves into it. That's not who wins and loses presidential elections. We have people who win and lose presidential elections are more marginal voters, are more people who have to be persuaded. And so that's why the age has such a prominence. It's because if your base and core is already having to talk themselves into it, and it's February, like that's, the, that's, that's where the 
the the floor of this is. Where we go next is on we don't know, right? Like let's say he has some great summer, he's running around, he looks all great, and everyone feels fine. Everyone's fine with Grandpa Joe come the fall. I'm not saying that's out of the question, but like they do have to do something. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Pondering the Bagel with Tom. Oh, the paradox of the bagel. Tis crunchy yet soft. Tis filling yet has a hole. Tis a vehicle for spreads, but only travels from toaster to plate. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, Get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. Let me ask you about another episode of The Run-Up. This is from earlier this month. Biden had a campaign event at the Emanuel AME Church in Charleston. Yeah. Where of course, there was a mass shooting in 2015. Protesters demanding a ceasefire in Gaza interrupted his speech. And I want to play a little bit of your exchange with Tamara who was an organizer for Free Palestine Charleston, and she was one of the protesters. There's a larger question about young people in this election and how they feel about Biden, specifically driven by the crisis in Gaza. So I guess I'm saying, when you all take your protest actions, are you thinking about any of that electoral politics impact? Or is it just getting the substance of the message out there? I think that, again, I just wanted to reiterate that there is an egocentrism with sort of kind of like centralizing the Democrat versus Republican race in our like any sort of political conversation or topic. Again, this isn't a Republican versus a Democratic issue, nor is it a tactic to be used as a sort of way to garner votes in the upcoming election. This is a humanitarian crisis and over 25,000 people now have died. So our stance needs to be taken exactly like that. It's not lightly and it's not supposed to be used as a tactic to be talk about the upcoming election. So that exchange goes on for a while with you asking about electoral concerns and Tamara yeah. mostly rebuffing you. What did you want to show with an interview? like that? Yeah, I mean, we think about these episodes in terms of giving people an opportunity to express where they are. So like, I don't need Tamara to have the same lens on electoral politics that I do. But I do think it's important for someone whose protests are affecting the electoral space to say 
how they think about their own actions. So I was really, what I wanted people to take away, well, one, I was open to whatever possibility of their own explanation they wanted to set. But what I took away from that is like, these people who are shouting down Biden are not doing so from a place of like um, trying to win over uh, public opinion on a specific slice of the issue, right? Like, it's not like her goal in doing that was so that more people pressure Joe Biden to call for a ceasefire. Her goal is in a moral stance that like, that is about the stance itself, right? And so I, I respect that as a lens on power and accountability that is not electoral politics. But I want, but because so much of that is the frame of this year, I wanted them to reject that, which they did over and over in a way they got super, they got super frustrated with me with asking the questions. <laughs> but I actually thought it was okay for them to do that. So what we did as after is we follow up by talking to Mayor Abdullah Hamoud, who's the mayor of Dearborn, who's a Democrat, who also is really upset with Biden, kind of shares a similar stance on the issue with them, but is much more willing to say clearly, he's like, yes, people aren't going to vote for them. And no, I don't care if that impacts whether they win or not. That's a question they have to answer. So I think that like the combination of them two is important. And so that's how I think about constructing those episodes. It's not that I need the protesters. They're not representative of everyone who holds a ceasefire stance, right? They aren't representative of most young people, too. But what they are representative of, the people who are driving um, some of this conversation right now, and I wanted to make clear that their lens and view on power is distinct from the people who are taking that message up and pressuring the administration on it kind of more from a traditional electoral insidery perspective. And I guess I wanted the, the clear answer to like the question that was in the air electorally, which was like, will these people care if their actions make Joe Biden lose? Which I know is a callous question because like people are actually in harm's way, have died, and like they're the conflict is not directly about Biden, you know? So I understand that I understand even frustration with that. But from our work and from our lens, I wanted to know, because they're in that space, because they're refusing to meet with them, they're creating bad headlines, they're interrupting them, whatever, whatever. Like, would, are, you thinking about the con- are you thinking about the potential impact of those actions? And I'm open to that answer being no. And when it was, I still think that's important for people to hear. And asking the question five times and having the premise of your question rejected five times is something you could not convey in a print story in the New York Times. hundred percent. It's the same type of thing that you have to hear people's moral clarity and you have to hear us kind of wrestle. And so I think that you can do that in the show where it's like, this happens on other episodes too. I'm thinking about abortion. I'm thinking about, you know, us talking to Mike Lindell and Ronnie McDaniel. Like, I think there have been moments which, which, you know, putting a question in front of someone that they don't want to hear is inherently uncomfortable, but I don't think it has to be. Like, I'm like, I'm asking for my reasons. You can tell me my reasons are stupid. And I, that's fine. <laughs> like, you know, like, and so it, it's also the importance of who you select too, because even their rejection, I think, speaks something to our mission, you know? And so we try to be really clear-eyed about the type of people we're choosing. And so if they reject our premise or re- if they accept it or reject it, we're still getting value. 
I saw you tweeting the other day about trying to avoid hive mind takes or overcooked takes about 2024. Yeah. What are the hive mind takes about this campaign that you already see percolating? Oh, um, it depends on right and left. Like, like I one, I think that like in general, the up and downness responsiveness to polling is like a cycle that like super annoys me, <laughs> you know, and. It's not because I don't like polling. I think polling is really important. I think the aggregate of polling is important. I think it points you in certain directions. I think they're like all ways it could be a starting point for you to answer a follow-up question. But the idea that every new thing is a thing we have to act like we knew nothing before it is wild to me. And um, I think that media, but the first thing I would say is like acting as if this election will not be close is to me just crazy like we can just communicate to people that the nature of polarization and the evidence that we have from these candidates are such that they should be preparing for a close and contentious election like i think that's a role we can play that actually is really helpful for people to understand the nature of the country and our political system like it requires you not like not acting like as if every quinnipiac that says seven percent lead has to be juxtaposed with some place that says five percent biden i'm like we know what this adds up to. It adds up to closeness. And that's actually okay to communicate to people that we don't know the result, but we know it'll be close. Anyway, um, I think that uh, overall, like, there is way too much Twitter belief in people as ideological actors, right? So, like, way too many people talk about voters as if... Um, as if they are operating from a policy or ideological lens or, or that like any piece of information breaks through to them about the election. Like one piece of information, like a month breaks through to them about the election. So most people, right? So like, like that is how you should think about the majority of voters in this country, which is, I want to say is not an insult. I do not say that as a bad thing. I say that as like, People have lives and people have like, and politics holds up one piece of that. And so, and not a day-to-day piece of that for the majority of people. And so the thing that I get really frustrated by is, you know, there'll be, you know, Twitter will be waiting for polls to justify the latest jobs report that will then mean that the policy accomplishments are cutting through. And it's just a series of thoughts that are totally disconnected from people. And so. That's another annoying one. I think Republicans have really overdone the um, the indictments helping Trump. I think that was only really true in the primary. I think now that we're in the general election, like we got to flip the lens. Like it is, you know, it's toxic for him in independence. It's toxic for him in swing voters. Like it's not actually good stuff. And I think the the overcook one I would say about Biden was just there was a complete underestimation of their own problems. Until now, I would say I think they've gotten around to it, but like. Last year, when we were asking them questions about Biden's age, and we were laughed out of the room. I mean, like, when we were saying, hey, poll after poll says Americans think he's an okay president, but nobody wants him again. Um, It was like, oh, our policy accomplishments are going to cut through before the end of the year, and those numbers will change. Now they're telling us the numbers don't matter, right? But that's not where they were. They were telling us they would change first. And so, like, 
basically, I don't think that that's like damning from them. I basically think they're now welcome to reality. And like, it is not just that individual people didn't think Donald Trump would be back. People didn't think Joe Biden would be back either. And the concern for voters and the, the realization from voters who are tuning in right now is about both of them, not just Trump. I've got two questions about political reporters for you. Yeah, sure. We had a few pieces early on in the primaries that said it wasn't just voters who had very negative views of the two candidates, but political reporters themselves were bummed out to be covering a Trump-Biden rematch. Do you actually believe that? Um, bummed out, like, I think bummed out in the same way the country's bummed out because they're familiar, right? Like, I don't say, I don't think bummed out because they don't like these two people in the, or I don't know, whatever. Like, I I would say it's much less an individual feeling among political reporters about the candidates and the feeling of familiar, more so than the feeling of familiarity that I think the country shares. Um, Mm. We've seen but, this before. Yeah. And the same kind of rematch, remake of a, a sequel no one asked really for. Um, but what I would say is the, what I say more than anything, is like it's a challenging reporting environment. Like, I think I would say is how do you take that familiar feeling and one, make clear to people there are new stakes and make clear to people that this still matters, you know? And so I think in 2020, there was such, I think one thing report political reporting is dealing with, I would say, is there was such intense interest in everything, in every kind of political action from 2016 and 2020. And I think through the presidential race, I mean, every story was hyper engaged with, every cable network was having 50 reporters on panels And you were just so in the center of the action. And I definitely think political reporting is dealing with a a country and a race that feels less interesting. And I think the Biden, Biden administration that's less leaky and more kind of like, you know, blaming press just as much, you know, or, or, and I think like it has created an environment that I think is more difficult than the last presidential election. I think those are all distinct from being like, oh my God, it's Biden and Trump again. I don't want to talk to them. You know? Yeah. You can, I think, overread stuff that political reporters who are in a Fairfield Inn in Des Moines say in that, you know, gimlet-eyed way we all try to be reporters. I just heard sports writers doing this in Vegas last week. They yeah. Las Vegas <laughs> covering the Super Bowl. Uh, you know. 100%. I like, there was one time I was with this reporter who was like complaining about getting on the bus to cover this candidate. This is like a couple months ago. They're like, they got no shots. And I was like, isn't that your, isn't that our job? Like, I don't know. Like I have a little bit of like, if you didn't like, it's challenging, it's more challenging or whatever. Or, and I definitely think like journalists were the heroes of the story for like four years, you know? And I definitely don't think it's that way anymore. Like, if I, if I mean, when, whenever we do something about Democrats, like I get yelled at on Twitter, right? Calling Biden old is like not a thing you could do on Twitter, you know? So I'm saying like, if you were used to getting all these retweets and you're used to people liking you and you really liked the idea that you were like holding the breach for democracy, like then, 
yeah, I do think you probably are going through it right now. But like, I wasn't trusting them when they were, when they, I, to me, like, reporting is never, you're never going to have friends for too long if you're good. <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, none of the journalists I like dealt that much with being liked. <laughs> so like, you know, I try to worry about being good. I try to worry about being fair. I try to be worrying accurate, all of those things. But like, I'm not shedding too many tears if like the nature of what is, I think, a different um, position that we are in uh, causes us some challenges. I think we got to rise to it. That actually feeds right into my second question, which is yeah. the reporters covering Trump's presidency became mm-hmm. very, very famous. Orders of magnitude more famous than they would have been if they'd been covering Hillary Clinton's administration with exactly the same skill. Definitely. Do you think reporters attaining that level of fame has changed anything about political coverage in this country? Like, (laughs) the important thing, let me, like, I say this with love for White House reporters. But the important thing to know about White House reporters is they were always famous in their own heads, right? Like, they, like, like, you know, so, like, they might be, you know, the the book contract might be a little less now, or, you know, I definitely think that, like, Trump added some different type of things here. But if you're you're a type of reporter who's in that briefing group, like, you already think you're famous. Um, I mean, I'm with you that I think that, like, I I definitely think that Donald Trump created an, but, but, first off, let me be honest. My my journalism career has been completely transformed by Donald Trump. The day before uh, 2016 election, I was a city council reporter at the Boston Globe covering the imminent race between M- Marty Walsh and Michelle Wu. And the day after, I was sent to Washington to be a D.C. reporter on this new president because nobody, uh, because no one had planned for this crazy transition and the globe needed like the young single person who could get on the Greyhound the next day to go. Right. Like, so I'm saying like, I don't want to act like it's them and not me too. I think there was a different, I think there was a, 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 an intense level of interest that completely changed the role and job. Um, but I don't want to act like, I think that changing has like, zapped people's willingness to do the work. What I will say is more than just famous, the Trump presidency was really leaky and really narratively rich, right? On its face. Like you didn't need to go scoop behind the scenes. The man in front of the camera said the craziest thing you've ever heard, right? So like there was things to do that were just there and a lot of topics that were just there. But I do think is even more than fame or money. Like, finding interesting stories from a White House that is not handing them to you, nor it is frontally there, is has changed a landscape, right? Like, I think, like, how many... The rate of, like, scoop craziness has really decreased, right? Like, the level of new book has really decreased and i would say even from a campaign perspective like the rallies were new and and crazy last time so how do you cover something if just going to a rally isn't new and crazy so i do think that onus has been thrust on us but like you know in my opinion like good journalism like will cut 
through that. And like, if you were reliant on the administration telling you what the story is, like, <laughs> it, your, your time was going to come up at some point anyway, you know? You're right about the rally story. That we did have the return to the Trump rally story a couple yeah. of weeks ago. Where everybody's like, yeah. I went back and you'll yeah. also never believe <laughs> what's happening. It's funny because like we were doing it in 2023 when like no everyone was not doing it. And then I, w- I was talking to one reporter who last week was like, oh, my God, they're crazy. And I'm like, yep, they're still crazy. A <laughs> couple more topics before we go. Ryan Clark, uh, yeah. ESPN yeah. NFL analyst. Uh-huh. Uh, really good one. He was on the set uh, when DeMar Hamlin's heart stopped uh, mm-hmm. in an NFL game last year and did a fantastic job. He put up a video the other day because he is now a free agent at ESPN. Mm-hmm. It's a video about how hard he's worked, where the position he's put himself in and what he wants from his next contract. Let's play a quick clip from that. It wasn't what I wanted. You know, like I realized I was like I had to do more. And uh, like, honestly, I felt played. <laughs> and you know, the worst thing for anybody that's from New Orleans is to feel played. But I felt like I deserved something that they didn't feel like I deserved. And so I set out that day and I said, that day, that in three years, I'll be the best in the world doing this. That there'll be no stone left unturned. I leave no doubt that there was nobody in the world that was like me. So I started my own stuff, bro. Like I started the pivot. I, I did the work. I got on the road. I went to every show they put me on and made sure I crushed it. And so now, here we are again. The season's over. Inside the NFL, it's finished. And somebody got to pay the piper. And it's either, you know, we get what we want or we make a decision to stand on what we're worth. It's not that I think that I should be paid more than anybody that does the job i just want you know i just want what i'm worth and if they think too that i'm the best doing it then that's what i have for wow i watched a couple minutes of that i did not sit i did not watch the whole thing that's interesting it is fascinating isn't i have a theory about this yeah i would love to lay on you it may not appeal apply to ryan clark so much because he is a genuinely famous Mm -hmm. athlete and commentator but I think those of us in the media who have consumed Woj bombs and Adam Schefter bombs for years, who've watched that become the basic unit of basketball and football journalism, have begun to think of our own careers in the same terms. We have become come to think of our career changes, our professional development as events or things we should turn into events. Have you noticed that, too? Some personal news tweets, you know, like when people like do their own little Schefter bomb on themselves. I, d- I definitely can see that being true. I mean, I think that like as a sports media consumer, there has been a drastic change in the landscape of people's people like like media. Sports media is definitely part of a story. But I also think that's partly because sports media has become less journalistic. Like there was a distance that the Michael Smiths and Jamel Hills and even the like early versions of Stephen A. Smith and Skip Bayless had from the athletes and institutions themselves because they were newspaper people. Like they were people who were making an argument, but they weren't part of the game. Like 
And one, from my, I mean, you would know about this better, but one, they seems to have completely like flipped the script in terms of having more athletes on rather than those types of voices, period, right? There's some left. I'm thinking of the Mina Kimeses and like others, but like the, the Ramona Shelburne, like whatever. But I'm saying like, they're still mostly, they've introduced former athletes a lot more. And like, I just don't even think fans, like, like the fan media of my growing up was Bill Simmons and Grant Land and which was still journalistic it mostly like they had their rooting interest and those were really obvious but they were not um they were not again they weren't one with the game and i think about the player pods in the nba i think about Travis Kelsey and Jason Kelsey's thing i just think like or even Pat McAfee and the way that he would like he, I wouldn't say that's journalistic at all, right? That's just, that's like good vibes, but nope, you know, journalism would bring down the mood <laughs> on the Pat McAfee show. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't even think, to me, that's the interesting part is like, I don't even know if fans want uh, like that voice anymore. And that's been a shift. And so like, you know, you not only have more like Ryan Clarks and former athletes or whatever, but you have like the ways that sports gambling has blended all these lines. It just feels like a big blended line to me in a way that it didn't always feel. Like I actually saw what sports journalists did as an entry point that eventually got me into political journalism. But like it felt like cousins, you know? You could see like the people on ESPN who were doing work that you would do if you were in sports. Mm-hmm. And I just think that like that doesn't exist for them anymore. I'm curious what you think about that. No, it's, 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 it's absolutely right. And it's fascinating how it's blended. You know, yeah. when you talk about Bill, like the old days of like, wait, if I'm actually a fan of the Patriots or the Celtics, why do I need to pretend? Why do I need to yeah. put on this old media type thing? It makes complete sense. But mm-hmm. then, as you say, it blends further and further and further where it's like, oh, mm-hmm. now we have Draymond Green has a podcast and is kind of a media member while he is a player. Definitely. <laughs> we, we've traveled a long way down this road. And, and and fans seem to like, I mean, I know that like when we were starting the run up, like the challenging part of the podcast environment right now is if you're not a celebrity, if you're not an athlete and people want, they want Julia Louis-Dreyfus talking to her friends. They want uh, Cameron and Mace talking music. Like they have people that, you know, it's become, you know, there was something democratizing about podcasts, but there's also something about like a very certain type of person now who's kind of leading that industry. And I think sports is really been the has been a big driver of that in a way that as a fan i'm curious about because it's like it's not like i hate it right like it's not like there's anything i think that's wrong with draymond green having a podcast i just wish it wasn't it didn't feel like it took up the entirety of the space i wish that our our side of the industry wasn't collapsing at the same time their side was emerging you know absolutely Absolutely. That there was room for both of them at the same time. Yeah. Now you get the sneaking yeah. suspicion that there actually might not be. Yeah. By the way, exactly. My favorite thing that journalists do when they're creating their own Woj bombs is you have an announcement. Okay. I'm, I'm leaving the Boston Globe after five years. I'll have something to announce. More news soon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Thanks. My, my least favorite journalism, like you're not woke, like, like, um, News upcoming or stay tuned for news. Stand by for news. I'm like, <laughs> you better have the scoop of the century if you te- if you mess if you like hit stand by for news. and it never lives up to that like standard. I'm like, if Woj tweeted stand by for news, 
I know Kevin Durant's movement. You know, like I know there is something that is actually, I I am locked into my phone, right? Like, but he doesn't tweet standby for news because we all have him on alerts anyway. So like, you know. Two quick ones for you. Speaking of the Boston Globe, you used to work there. We're talking in the midst of this media apocalypse, which is affecting regional newspapers as much as anything. What did you learn at a newspaper like the Globe that would have been harder for you to learn elsewhere? Oh my God. I really appreciate this question. I, the Globe taught me how to be a journalist, period. Like I was, I came there immediately after college. I was a summer intern and then they uh, kept me on and I stayed for a year and a half more in Boston. And I did the very classic first newspaper job. I uh, cover crime, uh, fires, overdoses, murders, like your, you know, city council meetings. You're very like standard general assignment metro reporter job that's existed for like decades and maybe centuries in a place like the globe but a job that's increasingly not the path of young people and i remember when i got out of school i had all of these friends who i was really jealous of and to be honest at the time who were writing these think pieces and their identity was in their work and they were able to write with different voice And I was like knocking on five houses and I was like, you know, having to follow up with the mother of the victim and da, da, da. And it felt like, you know, my story was on like B5, you know, like much less like, um, you know, the front page of BuzzFeed, whatever, whatever, whatever folks were doing at the time. And like, I remember, actually, this is a roundabout way of me answering your question. I remember one time talking to someone who was like a big leader in uh, journalism. And saying that I want to get a new job, um, I like want to be like more like the, my kind of friends who can write with voice and can whatever, whatever. And I remember this person telling me, and one of those like older people, like I got a lesson for you, son. <laughs> like he's like, you work at the Boston Globe, like <laughs> like you have a good job, like and if you commit yourself to this job, you will be a good journalist. And like, and like, I remember it being a moment that actually had me remember that I was actually skill building in this way that I really look back and I'm thankful for. Like the globe was big enough to be ambitious and also small enough as a regional paper where they needed you, you know, and you were part of you. You had both the latitude to try different stuff. So First time I ever tried to do an enterprise thing or an investigative piece or, you know, I remember working with the person on Spotlight for a story and literally asking her, like, if you work on something for months, like, how do you do that? Like, and I would go to journalists at the Globe who would write stories that I knew I couldn't and just ask them about their process. Like, mm. how do you organize quotes? When did you, why did you go to this person? How, why did you start with this person? And so, like, there was not only, it's not only just possible because that expertise was in the room, but like there were structures of editing that had been in place for a long time that really, really benefited me. And the last thing I would say is the Globe used to have this thing in the internship process. I hope they still have it. I'm not sure. Where you would send your first copy of a story to this like longtime reporter. His name is Charlie Ball. And he would read it. And then after the story went through all your real edits during the day, the week after, he would come with you and we would go through the story that appeared in the paper versus the first version you just wrote. And it was something that was huge for me in terms of walking through those changes and actually understanding how journalism worked. 
So that's a long way of me saying, I don't think um, places have that type of process, right? I don't think the new kind of digital age places have that muscle memory. And places like the New York Times are not made for young people. They would, maybe they would be mad at me for saying that. But they're not, really. You know, like, I mean, they're doing a good job of, like, you know, supporting the people who are here, whatever, whatever. But if you're a journalist at the New York Times, they kind of think you know how to do journalism already. Like, you should, you know? And so I needed a place that could train me, that could help me grow, and that could, that also allowed me to be ridiculous. Like, I had so many passions about what I thought journalism should look like. And some of them, looking back, were ridiculous. And the one thing I, uh, the thing I truly appreciate about the Globe, they never told me how ridiculous I was. <laughs> looking back now, I'm like, oh, I was insane. But like at the time, all those crazy leads I was trying, they would just be like, let's talk through it. You know, they would <laughs> like all those crazy story ideas I was doing. They're like, let's sit down, whatever, whatever. And so all of those kind of passions about like maybe journalism can be more voice. Maybe we can do political stuff in different ways. Like, they really affirmed that. And so I think that if there is a media lesson I have, and as I tell people, like, I think it's much more important to go to a place that gives you that practice and gives you that ability to try, especially as a person coming out of college, rather than it is to do, like, the first job. Like, I don't think I do the run-up. I don't think I am a political reporter in the way I want to be if my first job is at Politico. No disrespect. But, like... I didn't, I didn't have politics brain, you know? Like, my journalism learning did not come through politics. And so even now, it's about applying the same lens I did in those crime stories to report, to political reporting. But it's not as if, like, people are like, oh, politics reporting needs to be infused with a sense of people. I'm like, how did you learn journalism without a sense of people, right? And that, to me, is a real newspaper equality. Let's talk through it is such a great bit of editor speak. Yeah, 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 yeah. You've done yeah. something wrong. I, le- I just learned that it. let's talk through it actually means this idea is crazy. But at the time, I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Last topic before you go. John yeah. Stewart is back. Mm-hmm. We have no shortage of early aughts nostalgia in our lives. But there was something about watching his show from Monday and he'd play a clip from Trump or Biden and it would come back to Stewart and he'd be doing that deadpan look yeah. right at the camera like hmm? <laughs> how do you think that brand of political comedy plays in 2024 i think it's interesting you know i am someone who um who really you know a college during like Stuart colbert time was like a, a, a formative as you say like memory i mean i think that now the reaction to him was interesting like he in my opinion played it like pretty safe and good, right? He acknowledged the differences of both candidates at the same time talking about the thing that most people are talking about, which is that they're both old and like how this system um, has produced these things. There's a voter we talked to it for our first episode who said something I always think about, which is that he was like, if it becomes, he's like, if this election ends with us having to choose between Biden and Trump, then that should not be, that's not a reflection of the people in this country, but of the parties that put them there. I think about that all the time. Like, and I think that that is a feeling that people have. And I think it's a feeling that Stuart named really well. And um, the reaction, right, is like, is, 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 I think, I'm thinking specifically of like the freak out of Democrat by acting like he's doing both sides and blah, 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 blah. 
I just think that like the space to be nuanced is harder. And so I'm curious on how someone like him navigates that. I'm also curious if there's any reflection he has from that Obama period. Because one of the things that really sticks out to me as one of a person who was like in Wisconsin during peak kind of like Obama liberal mocking of the time. I'm not, I don't say Obama was doing it, but I think there was an ecosystem that was kind of like liberal mocking. It was clear as a youth that these people were missing the point. Like it was at the same time when Scott Walker was taking over Wisconsin by force, you know, as the Tea Party was handing out loss after loss. And I was turning on Comedy Central and it was all a joke, right? And so I personally think that there is a language of of kind of debate class that has been like normalized in a lot of liberal circles that if we're just right, if we just prove that we're right and they're wrong, if we just prove that we're smart and they're dumb, that means we win. And I do think that's a language that Stewart specifically helped popularize. And I wonder not only does how does how does nuance play now, but I wonder do we get the same version of it now? How does he deal with Republicans now? And uh, that's what part of the reason I will be tuned in is because I think um, in the same way I think a lot of people look back at the kind of pre-2016 confidence and are regretful, particularly on the Democratic side. I wonder if he experiences or has updated the language in which he uses to talk about these people. Because listen, listen like, there's very little difference between what we do and what Jordan Klepper does, right? Or, or like what we do and what, uh, you know, somewhat of a John Oliver does. I would say Klepper is a more better example. We just don't mock people. <laughs> we just let them talk. We, we just actually earnestly care how they think and they're going to vote, right? And so I think that people have space to do a lot of things. And I think that like, we're not doing the same thing. But what I do think is that that brand of uh, like comedic haughtiness only hits if you're winning, in my opinion. Mm, that's like, interesting. I, I don't think smugness works if you lose. <laughs> I think it's actually really embarrassing. And so I look back at the pre-2016 smugness and I think, aren't y'all embarrassed? But I don't know. They make me, <laughs> I, don't, actually, I don't know. I don't know if they are. I was thinking about this when I was watching that first episode in terms of the cadence of Jon Stewart, the mock outrage. Yeah. Like every podcaster in America is doing an impression of Jon Stewart. They may not exactly. know it. They may have been laundered through three other podcasters and they think yeah. they're doing an impression of somebody else, but they are doing an impression of that way of talking. Yeah, it's a, it's it is a language and a communication style that uh, not only that that he rubber stamped, and I think that it's interesting. Like to, I would say personally, I loved. I I was always like a Colbert guy more than a Stewart guy, and partly I think that's like timing and just like age. But I also think I like the character. Because it wasn't, character to me somehow made the comedy complete. Mm. Like, I, I, I mean, this is obvious from the work that I do. But I like don't, I think no form of, of smug, like to me the mocking, even people who are incorrect, only has yay amount of value, right? Because it's not like I think that the other side is always working from the side of right. And so that's a journalist brain, right? 
And it's partly the reason I didn't end up working in politics. Like, I didn't want to tell people this side's good, you know? Um, but at the same time, I, I, I'm going to be curious as to, like, which version or what, what John Stewart 2.0 looks like. Because I do think beyond even needling liberals, okay, like, how are you going to deal with the reality of Republicans? And is it, does it come from that same tone? For sure. And he was not there in 2016 when all this yep, happened absolutely. in earnest. All right. Ested Herndon, if you're not listening to his podcast, run up, you are doing the election wrong. New episodes every <laughs> Thursday all year long. Am I getting that right? Yes. Thursday all year long. Ested, thank you for coming on the press box. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. That is the press box. I'm Brian Curtis. Production magic, as always, by Brian Waters. All right, so next week, you know, we have a week off, a wellness week, if you will, at The Ringer. No podcast, but we are back the following week. And on February 29th, we're going to have Sean Fennessy on this podcast. I cannot wait to talk to him about all the news of the week. I think I'm going to draw him out about his experiences at Pitchfork, something we haven't talked about too much in the press box. And we're also going to revisit the great campaign documentary, The War Room, from 1993. So if you haven't gotten a chance to see that yet, check it out. We'll talk about that on February 29th. And on Monday, February, what is it? 27, 28, 27, 26, 25. I think I got my dates right. David Shoemaker and I return. More lukewarm takes. Have a fantastic week. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side-by-side. Side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today.